0: As mentioned, we're entering into a season of Advent, and so these next four Sunday mornings leading up to Christmas, we will uh, focus our thoughts on the, the eager anticipation of what is to come, and so this morning, <laughs> so that's not for you, <laughs> it's not for me, <laughs> um, Ken is Ken is doing this for the first time this morning, so no picking on him. For the numerous mistakes he's made and will continue to make. (laughs) (laughs) Public flogging, Ken. You didn't know you were signing up for that, right? We will increase your pay tenfold. Ten times zero is still zero. (laughs) Uh, So this morning we're going to be focusing on hope. Next week will be peace uh, with Dr. Bland preaching the week after that will be joy and then we'll conclude it right before Christmas with a theme of, of love and the an actual Christmas Eve service itself. So this morning we're looking at what does it mean to have hope uh, in this hopeless world that we live in. And so I've entitled the message, Retaining Hope in a World So Hopeless. And all you have to do is turn on CNN or Fox News, both of them, And conclude, we live in a hopeless world at times. Um, And so this morning we're going to look into the Old Testament and a little bit into the New Testament. And may God, by his grace, continue to bathe us in what he has done for us and who he is and change us. Uh, Let me pray and then we'll get into into the sermon. Father, once again we come before you and ask that as we come to your word that you would teach us. Holy Spirit, would you supernaturally, in a way that only you can, would you prick our hearts? Would you remove the anxiety and the worry? All of the stuff that is keeping us right now from centering our thoughts and our attention on you. Father, as we think about Christmas, we're burdened with um, parties that we have to attend, parties that we're hosting, Christmas presents that need need to be purchased. Father, as we prepare for that time, would you give us great rest and refuge in you? Father, help us not to lose sight of what this month is all about. Holy Spirit, teach us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we've thought about this, or as I have thought about this week, the the theme of hope I'm reminded of a, a book that I read, and this is one of the rare occasions, and I confess to my shame, one of the rare occasions where I actually read the book and then watched the movie. But a few years ago, there was a book that was written by Laurel, I think Laura Hillebrand, um, and then there was a, a, the movie came out, and it was entitled Broken. And the movie was about this true-life story of a character named Louis Zamperini or Zamper something like that, Uh, But he was a young man back in the World War II era who entered into the Air Force and then was eventually on a plane flying over the South Pacific, and then the plane crashed. And he and two other gentlemen, I believe, uh, spent 47 days floating in the ocean in this little raft. One of the gentlemen, during the course of that 47 days, um, gave up hope, chose it wasn't worth it, living in there with the daily stress of being in the sun, and the cracked skin, having no food to eat, no water to drink, and lost the will to live, gave up hope, and died uh, in the the raft with the other two present. And the author of the book said this in her um, kind of summary towards the end of the book. Given the the dismal record of raft-bound men, Max's desire was reasonable. After 40-some days, his desire to, in despair was reasonable. What is remarkable is that the two men who shared Max's plight didn't share his hopelessness. Though all three faced the same hardship, their differing perceptions of what appeared to be shaping their fate. It amazes me how quickly I a man who's gone through Bible college and seminary, become hopeless or start down that path. I've truly never arrived at a place where I'm absolutely hopeless, but I've certainly entered into that doorway and started viewing life from a different perspective, wondering, oh Lord, where are you? What's going to happen? Is there a way out? Just in the last month, we've had our youngest son's car die and told it needs a new engine and it's going to cost more than what the car's worth. Just this past week, another son's car died and the the, uh, mechanic said it needs a new engine and this is what it's going to cost. And then last night, Deb said "Uh, the washer just broke down. And I'm thinking, well, isn't this just perfect? (laughs) As I enter into this month of Advent, as we enter into this month of Advent, with this eager longing of the already, but not yet. The already, but more to come. Uh, We see the passage that we're going to look at is in the Old Testament. It's the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 33, who is prophesying about what is to come. And he says these words... And Ken, this is my fault. I did it on you. I skipped, I I jumped over one. So if you could go back to the passage. Jeremiah 33, 14 through 16. Behold, the days are are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those, in those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is our Righteousness. And so the context of Jeremiah writing this passage was he was an Old Testament prophet who existed somewhere between uh, 620 and 580. Approximately those 40 years were his ministry to the people of Judah, specifically those who lived in Jerusalem. And if you've ever read the book of Jeremiah, it is a book filled full of sorrow and oracles of doom and pleas for repentance. And so the first 29 chapters or so in this book are all spent with Jeremiah warning the people, if you don't repent, this is what's coming. And they choose not to repent, if you're familiar with church history. And then in 586... The, the city of Jerusalem was sieged and completely taken over by the Babylonians and the jews were the, the folks in Jerusalem, the nation of israel were were carried off into bondage into babylon and it 's in this chapter uh, verse 30, or chapter thirty three that that Jeremiah offers a sense of hope to the people who are living. And, bondage. and so we see this reality. The truth number one that I want you to walk away with is hopelessness is real and the result of man's sinfulness. Hopefulness is, hopelessness is real. And sometimes when we live in this world of Christianity, we deny those or we uh, have a sense of uh, looking down on those who are struggling with the realities of life. And I want us to walk away this morning with two conflicting truths. And this first one is, hopelessness is real and the result of man's sinfulness. Why were the people of Judah taken off into captivity? Why did they need to hear good news? Quite simply, they were a, a people who were experiencing God's incredible favor, God's incredible blessing, and they chose through their own uh, willful decision. We really don't need this God anymore. And so, if you study the whole Old Testament, you see this repeating pattern of God's chosen people on this roller coaster ride where they are serving Him faithfully. God, we need you. We want to honor you for who you are. And then, weeks or days or months later, They turn their back on him. God, we've got this under control. We don't don't need you. And when Jeremiah writes this book, he's pleading with these people to take their eyes off the temporary. Please tell me you see a connection. He's pleading with them, take your eyes off the here and now and the temporary and live for the God who is appearing to be unseen. And then he offers these great words in chapter 33, verses 14 through 16. 29 chapters, he honors the fact that hopelessness is real. And he's wanting them to understand that we often arrive at a place of hopelessness Um, usually for three reasons, and I, I think I've shared these before. We often arrive in a place of hardship or hopelessness because of the sins of somebody else. And we live in a sinful world, and when we interact with sinful people, sinful people hurt each other. And so sometimes we experience a sense of darkness and hopelessness because of someone else, and there's absolutely nothing we can do. Sometimes we experience hopelessness because God is a God who's sovereign and he knows what's best for us. And although nobody else is involved, God has brought a hardship into their life because he's wanting a person to repent and he's wanting a person to turn back to him. And it's also quite possible the person isn't needing, they're not living in a place of sin. And God's bringing hardship in it just simply because he's wanting to honor and to glorify his name. And that's a hard lesson to learn. And then often there's a third reason why, why do we experience hopelessness? Why do we experience hardships? And the nation of of the the people of Judah were experiencing this hopelessness at this moment because of their own sinfulness. It's so easy when we and get when we experience hardship that we want to start pointing fingers at people. In Judah's hardship was simply the result. Of their own sinfulness. And they had experienced warning. After warning. After warning. And they chose not to listen. But we see these words. In this passage. Or in this text. Behold the days are to coming. Declares the Lord. When I will fulfill the promise. In the midst of this darkness. And in the midst of this great. uh, Hardship and hopelessness. Where. Homes were lost, where family members were murdered, where there, were no, uh, there was no economic system in place for them as they were taken off to another country into captivity. They lost everything. And we see these words of great grace to them. Behold, the days are coming when I will fulfill my promise Um, which is this this second uh, truth that we're going to get into in a second. What's it look like to be hopeless? Hopelessness is having no sense of optimism, having no hope. Hopelessness is arriving in a place of desperation. Uh, It's a place of despairing. It's a place where absolute grief begins to enter in. Hopelessness is a state where it's impossible to accomplish, to to solve or to resolve issues. You're at the mercy of someone else. Or better yet, you are at the mercy of an all-knowing and all-powerful sovereign God. Hopelessness. Why do we experience it today? Um, just a few reasons that I've, I've put down. And I think that you could add to this pretty quickly. We've already mentioned one. We experience a sense of hopelessness with a political climate that seems to be at an all-time low. Uh, interestingly enough, I, I just Googled the term this past week, hopelessness, and one of the first articles that came up was an article written by somebody uh, two years ago as they were mourning the results of the election two years ago, and, and their absolute hopelessness for our country with what took place. And the irony is you have people on both sides of the fence saying the exact same thing because we put our hope in the wrong place. There's always an uncertainty of the stock market and this job security. There's hopelessness because of relational tension and brokenness within valued, trusted relationships. We have a sense of hopelessness when children whom we have raised in the faith depart from it. There's a sense of hopelessness for just living in the reality of a cursed world where cars break down and appliances need to be replaced. It's just the reality of the words that we read or that the Reynolds read in Romans chapter 8 that even the creation itself is groaning because it's under the curse. We also experience at times a sense of hopelessness with this unrelenting and gripping cycle of our own pet sins. We promise over and over and over God, if you'll forgive me, I will never do this again, I promise. And then, like a dog that returns back to its vomit a day later, two days later, a week later, we find ourselves in the throes of committing that very sin. I promised. And at times, over months, over years, a sense of hopelessness creeps in. The second truth uh, in this passage is just as hopelessness is real, hope is real. Truth number two, hope is real as well and is the result of the righteous one. It's interesting to me, when you listen to when somebody has passed away, and they have no belief system, they have no connection with any world religion. And this is more and more in our culture. And as they have no connection with any um, system of belief outside of live for today and enjoy it. And soak it up for what it's, what it's worth. When somebody in their circles passes away, all of a sudden they talk about great hope. Of that person is now in a better place. And because I'm a little, my my daughter would say rude at times, um, I want to ask people aggressively, what are you talking about? You have no hope. There was no belief system there. And so the reality is this truth is real, hope is real, but it's only real when it's grounded in absolute truth. It is entirely possible for us to have a sense of hopefulness But what it really is, is just wishful thinking. There is no basis for hope. Let's be honest, the truth is, after day two or day three, those three gentlemen floating in the raft, two of them maintained hope for 47 days. But what was that hope based on? That hope was not based on any sure or real, confident promise. And for those of us who are in the faith, we have that. We see here uh, in the passage that we read, um, verse 14, hope is real because of the righteous one who keeps his promises Verse 14, Behold, the days are are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The prophet's correspondence with the exiles in Babylon envisions a day when the people would be returned to their land and their fortunes regained. They believed the promise of God because it was, fulf- it was prophesied in many different places. This is what's going to happen, but then this will take place later. Ironically enough, um, the words of, of Martin Luther King, who said in his famous speech, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing I may not see that day with you, but I know it's coming. I may not experience the beauty of what I'm talking about right now, but I know it's coming. We also see in the the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, Isaiah prophesied as well, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. We are not sitting in a raft, Hoping upon hope, crossing our fingers, praying but not knowing the results. We are not in the wrath floating aimlessly. You and I have hope because of the promises that are in Scripture, the promises that that a little one, a brave little boy, as we sang a little while ago, would come and he would save his people. Now the reality is when Jeremiah wrote these words as they were sitting in captivity and he was trying to offer them a sense of hopefulness, he may have envisioned this baby boy who was coming, the righteous one. Chances are probably that he thought that somebody was going to come as a political king in the line of David and it would be a physical man here on earth who would save us and would avenge us. Our ways are not God's ways. If you have um, listened to me before, you have heard me talk about another movie that's in my top five. And it's this movie called Shawshank Redemption. And it stars Morgan Freeman and Tim Robbins. And I, I cannot ever think about the concept of hope without hearing the voice of Morgan Freeman in my head, where at some point, where they're in prison, and Tim Robbins has come across the character uh, Andy Dufresne, and he's come across some Italian opera music, and he puts it on the player, and he locks the door so the guards can't get in, and he bursts it forth for everybody to hear, and everybody in that prison comes to a standstill. They had no idea what they were singing in Italian, but they stood and listened with a sense of reverence and awe because it soothed their soul. And as a result of that, Andy Dufresne uh, earned a month in solitary, solitary confinement all by himself. Um, and at the end of that time, he was meeting with the other guys at breakfast table and they were teasing him, how did your time go? And he responds with something like, it was the easiest time I've ever done in my life. And Andy was talking about how Mozart was with him in solitary confinement. And the guy sitting at the table, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Did you take the record player in with you, Andy? And Andy's reply, no, it was here. It was here. It was in me. I took it with me. And that famous line from Morgan Freeman, from red who said hope is a dangerous thing hope hope is dangerous if we're not basing it on absolute truth and promises that we've seen fulfilled And so we see these words behold the days are coming when i will fulfill the promise You and I have the beauty of looking back. They looked 100 years in advance, hoping and believing and trusting in faith, the promise that some Messiah would come, and you and I have this beautiful opportunity to look back and to see the historical records that this little baby was born. He was crucified. He was, by the testimony of over 500 people, raised from the dead and ascended into heaven hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament came true in that one person. We have a hope that's not just cross our fingers. It's a hope based on, on, on truth and on promises. This hope is real because in this process, the, the curse is reversed By the righteous one. Verse 15. In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up from David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. What's he talking about? Jeremiah is talking about that when God chooses to act. And when he chooses to intervene. He is going to right the wrongs. He is going to reverse the curse of this world. And oh, by the way, people of Judah, that means he's going to right your wrong as well. If you study church history, there was a biblical history. There was a 400-year period where God went silent, but he did act. Isaiah chapter 11 tells us this. He he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. If you're familiar with the Gospels, Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are meek. Those who are poor in spirit. Those who recognize that I cannot save myself. I need something outside of me. Those who are meek in spirit. Who may be powerful, but are able to set that aside with great humility. Hope is real because of the righteous one who saves his people from their sins. In verse 16 we see, In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. Hope is real because of the promises that were fulfilled in the person of Jesus the one who is considered and called the righteous one, the one who saves his people from their sins. In the book of Matthew, chapter 1, we're told, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. We have hope because God had a remedy for our sinfulness. We have hope because God's not leaving us in a place of sin where we deserve to be left to ourselves. But God sent his son on a rescue mission to save his people from our sins. As I was reading this week, I was reminded of these words, and I just want to read them because I want you to to hear the richness of them. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We must always see, however, that the reformers emphasized a word that they found to be absolutely essential to the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which they in turn saw as essential to a right understanding of the gospel. And they call this word imputation. The reformers suggested to us that the gospel must contain, Michael Horton suggests, just like a chocolate chip cookie must have chocolate chips in it to be a chocolate chip cookie. (laughs) If you remove the chocolate chips, you don't have a chocolate chip cookie anymore. And the reformers suggested this. That if we really have an understanding of the gospel, and if we have an understanding that Jesus came to save his people from their sins, then we have to understand, maybe not maybe not this word in its entirety, but have to understand the basic fundamentals of this doctrine of imputation, which just simply means this. Um, The word imputation comes directly from the Latin. It's an accounting term which just simply means to apply to one's credit. This gospel, if you take it just a little bit deeper, there's these two acts that take place. Jesus receives our sins. Our sinfulness is credited to his account. He takes what is ours and places it upon himself as he goes to the cross and suffers the punishment from the Father on our behalf. But then the flip side of that coin is not only is our sins accredited to his account, but his righteousness is credited to ours. And so when that day of judgment comes and the Father looks in the record of wrongs and he looks in the book of life and he sees your name and he sees my name and all that we've done has been scratched out. And what was not rightfully ours, the perfect righteousness of Christ is in our account on our behalf. That's why Jesus came. That's why we, four weeks out, celebrate with great hope that we are not a people lost. But we are a people based on the promises of Scripture, the prophecies that were fulfilled, the perfect life of what Jesus did for us in obeying all of the commands on our behalf, going to the cross, suffering the wrath of his Father Crediting our sins to himself and then reversing his righteousness to us. That's what Christmas is about. What do you do with this? Where do we go from here? Let me, let me back up just a second. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so when Jeremiah, some 2,600 years ago, talked about there is one whom we call the righteous one, he is coming to save his people. Through the person of Christ, that has been given to you and to me. What do we do with this? Just three quick takeaways Takeaway number one, because we live in a world that's still groaning, recognize the hardships around us. Have a sense of willingness of being honest and looking at life's not fair, life is hard, and I don't want to be cold-hearted towards that. If you read the prophet of Jeremiah and then the very next book that he penned, which was the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah was a prophet who wept bitterly over the hardships of his people. Now what's interesting, I didn't mention this earlier, what's interesting, he wept bitterly and he entered into that with them. But he also purchased property in a nearby city of Jerusalem while they were in captivity, because he believed that God was going to restore his people and bring them back. I so long to be a church that recognizes the hardships that people go through and we don't turn a blind's eye. But because we believe that grace changes everything, we're willing to sit in the dirt with them and minister to them where they're at, a second takeaway: accept ownership for our own sinfulness. We are a people who love to blame others. We are a people who love to. It's not my fault. This wasn't in my notes, but we have a president who refuses to accept any blame. May that not be us? Accept or recognize or accept ownership for our own sinfulness. And then as we prepare for the celebration of the birth of Jesus, we have four weeks to enjoy this sweet time of accepting ownership and repenting and bathing in his mercy. Third takeaway is simply this rest in the righteous one who gives great grace. Galatians 5, 5 tells us, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We live in this tension of the already, but not yet. This righteousness is ours, but there is more to come. And in the meantime, as you experience the busiest four weeks of your life, you rest Rest in the righteous one. Bathe in his great kindness for you in his love and the hope that is sure, that is living, that is decided, that is ours. Rest in that. Let me pray. Father, please help us. Lord, it is so easy for us in our sinfulness and our frailty to um, wander into despair, to have our eyes focused on the, the, the temporary right around us. And Lord, we confess that we do become hopeless at times when we take our eyes off you. Father, please, in your mercy, help us. By your spirit and your grace, would you whisper the promises that are ours? Would you whisper them into our into our mind, into our heart, into our soul. Father, bathe us in your grace and change us. Strengthen and firm up our faith, our faith in you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.